Hello. After a delay in which I was busy doing a lot of other things, including launching a new educational institution, I am now happy to return with you to the Fairy and Fantasy class, where we are discussing Andrew Lang's fairy books. This is Class Session 17, and in this class we talk about Rumpelstiltskin, Hansel and Gretel, and Beauty and the Beast. But first, we take a closer look back at Aladdin. Okay, my my goal for today is... I mean, I'd, I'd kind of like to, or at least I'd be very willing to kind of range rather freely among the stories that we've read. I, I don't feel myself compelled to go very systematically through them, chiefly because they're not really in any particular order, um, other than basically the order of appearance in Lang's collection. So, um, so I'd be happy to kind of make any kind of connections that you guys were interested there. I want to start, because I want to make sure that we don't... Uh, we don't overlook this one as we didn't really t- get to talk about it at all last time. I want to start with the Aladdin story. And my first question there is really, here we don't get a fairy. We get a magician, right, who comes out of, well, not exactly nowhere, but anyway, comes uh, kind of unexpectedly and intrudes on and ends up transforming the life of the, of the shiftless loser Aladdin um, who has a big, like, he's like a playing ball in the street junkie of sorts, I guess. He's just, like, really lazy. Um, and is the grief of his parents, the death of his father, I guess. Like, his father died of grief uh, because his son played ball in the street too much. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to try that one out some point. Like, I'm you're going to kill your father if you keep playing ball. Because uh, I didn't know that could be fatal. It's actually a cautionary tale. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> the point is, he gets this magician who comes in, right? And everything starts changing. We, we, get, we get magicians and genies in Aladdin. Um, you know, we don't have, uh, uh, there are no forests anywhere. And, uh, and the, the people involved are, are very different. Apart from that fact, that is, that we get a magician instead of a fairy, a magician who appears to be human, um, how does that affect the story? How, how does that change it? What, do you see this? Does this seem like one that kind of doesn't fit in with the rest of the stories? Or, or, or what kinds of connections do you see? I'm asking this question very vaguely, but yeah, Kat? I didn't think it fit in just because it's a different culture. It's from a completely different tradition. Like, everything up to now has always been Western, and now we suddenly have an Eastern or a Mid-Eastern culture thrown in, where they probably don't have a similar concept with fairies, and their cultural codes are exceedingly different. Yeah, it is. And that's, that's like a Langism. I mean, it's one of the things that really differentiates <laughs> Lang's collection from, for instance, the collection of the Brothers Grimm. Um, he loves that. That's, this is to him a selling point. Um, and his collections will get more and more like that as time goes on. Aladdin stands out in the Blue Fairy book because most of the rest of them are either French or German, um, but that's not going to always be the case. Again, by the time even you get to the third or fourth collection, there are a lot of uh, different cultures that he's, that he's bringing in. So, um, so I agree that does, it does definitely change the feeling of it, there are, I think, some similarities. Let's, perhaps we should start with similarities. 
What kind of connections would you make? What kind of similar themes or ideas did you notice in the Aladdin story? Mac? Well, uh, we do have some really powerful and really strange non-humans who've got the genes. And there's also the descriptions of ridiculous wealth. We get those too. Yes, good. And there, even the... Even this sort of gift-giving relationship is itself kind of interesting, right? Uh, I mean, the Sleeping Beauty's parents are practically using the fairies like genies at her birth, or at least at her at her christening, right? Hey, let's let's make all of these fairies her godmothers so that they'll all come and give her these fabulous gifts. And the things that she's gifted with. <clears throat> Not, they're not as, the material emphasis isn't as great uh, as it is in Aladdin. I mean, that is, the things that she's given as presents are more, uh, you know, like she'll be the greatest singer and she'll be fabulously beautiful and, and all of these other things. But it, it, there's something almost genie-like in the way that those gifts are brought in um, by her parents, I think. Um, so certainly the idea of this kind of otherworldly magical <coughs> benefactor whose generosity can be, I hate to say exploited. I mean, the genies are clearly exploited uh, without any remorse. Um, that's what they're for, right? But um, at least that seems, to be, that seems to be the indication. The relationship with the fairies is not quite the same in Sleeping Beauty, but, but I mean, there are definitely parallels. That's good. You mentioned that the first time he really sits down and talks to the, the magicians, kind of seals his deal, essentially. They're sitting in a garden, which is, again, you know, the, you know, eating fruit. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, Aladdin, much more so than most of the other stories, is a city story, right? Um, it, it takes place almost entirely within cities, but... But we do get gardens. We do get gardens. It is not, even there, it's not entirely um, separated from, this. and of course, to, to, find, to find the lamp, they have to go out into remote places, right? Now, that's different because it's, uh, you know, the lamp is actively concealed, and, they're, and they're, they're, you know, going to the place where it's hidden. It's not a question of um, you have to go out into the woods and be completely by yourself, and then the fairies will find you, as has happened so many other times and so many other occasions. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we can see some similar, some similar kinds of ideas there. Other things? What about the genies themselves? What, what did you think of the genies? Apart from, anyway, if you're at all like me, the surprise at finding two of them... <laughs> You know, like the senior genie and the junior genie, like the junior genie of the ring and the senior genie of the lamp. Marta? Well, we just don't get a whole lot from them. It's, um, you know, Aladdin's like, well, I'd like this. Genie's like, okay. Well, yeah. I'd like this. Okay. It's, except for the end where the genie warns him about the murder plot, but that's basically it. Yeah, I agree. That's really the only independent action that we see the, genies, the genie taking at all, the only moment in the story where the genie seems like an actual character in the story uh, rather than simply a force or a tool. Um, of course, the unlimited nature of the wishes is also, of course, a difference between this version of the Aladdin story and many others. Um, you don't, you're not, when you're not restricted to three, you can, you can 
you can wish pretty, uh, pretty widely and pretty recklessly. I mean, I, I, when I, rem- I remember first reading it, that's sort of where I, I assumed we were going. So when Aladdin's first wish is, I wish for a really nice dinner, I was like, oh, man, classic <laughs> blunder, Aladdin, short, you know, short-sighted. And it's like, well, I was made a little bit comical by the fact, like, and afterwards, we can pawn the silver, right? I mean, that was, that, you know, that was kind of cute. It's like, well, I guess it's not, like, completely short-sighted, but still thinking small here, Aladdin. But then, of course, when it became clear that the wish was unlimited, then, of course, it, absolutely and and he just keeps doing that like a great dinner and then pawn the silver afterwards and they live happily for quite some time until he starts thinking bigger which seems to take some time um but anyway i'm digressing i agree the genie in that one moment becomes a character in that one moment sort of steps in and the rest of the time not so much erin in comparison to other fairies or fantastical creatures that pop up these genies are slaves and say that they are slaves and you know other fairies come in and they give gifts and they do things of their own free will and these guys aren't given that choice and you know they're not really characters but I still kind of feel a little sorry for them to be honest yeah it's yeah the story doesn't seem to go very far out of its way to elicit our sympathy for them but I agree, certainly coming to it from these other stories, um, they are so different from these other fairies, not only in being so much less personal, but also in being so much less mysterious. You know, it's, they, they just, you rub the thing. I, I don't still think I understand the rubbing thing. But anyway, you rub whatever it is, the implementing question, ring, lamp, uh, and they appear and do whatever, almost whatever, right, the ring, Guys, like, that's beyond my pay grade. I can't do that, but I can help you with other things. Um, Anyway, uh, but but there's a huge difference between the way that magic in general uh, is conceived in uh, in this story and magical figures than in fairy stories. There isn't, even though the genies are clearly other and the magician is, is weird, he's... Not separate. Magic is like a, a, it's an instrument, it's a tool that can be used and exploited by humans and effectively by clever humans. Um, and in the end, you know, we have this sort of very human struggle between Aladdin and the magician and who's going to end up with the lamp and who's going to, you know, he tricks the wife out of the lamp and then Aladdin gets it back. Um, though both of them are really quite simple tricks. There's no, like fabulously devious cunning used in either case. Um, though, like, the I'm dressing up as a second-hand lamp salesman is, like, kind of funny. But um, anyway, it, it's... There isn't that kind of sense of human being comes into an encounter with the inscrutable other. That element really just doesn't seem to be... There. At least I don't see it there in this story. And I think one thing, um, one effect of looking at this story, I think, is really to kind of emphasize that. We can see how, even in places where, as Robbie was pointing out last time, the fairies seem to be so old hat in some of these other stories, like in Sleeping Beauty. Nobody is astonished and amazed. Everyone seems perfectly comfortable when the fairies drop in for the feast. Um, yet, there's, it's, still, it's still different there. Um, there's a big difference between the genie popping out of the lamp and 
doing what he's told. And the fairy, even the good fairy, who is their friend, showing up in a flaming chariot pulled by dragons and saying, hey, what's up? <laughs> it's different, right? Very, feels very different. What else? Other thoughts? Kelly? Um, the basic formula seems rather similar in that there's this sort of, um, I guess, like a quest or a mission, and then later a secondary mission, but there's not really any clear antagonist in the story. I mean, in, in Aladdin we have the magicians, but they are just sort of behaving as magicians behave. Nobody seems to re- really think less of them for their naughty behavior. Yeah, it's Aladdin and the magician are kind of operating on a very similar level, right? I mean, they're rivals because they both want the same thing, and so they're in conflict. But yeah, the magician doesn't seem especially evil, right? Um, just as we didn't get any especially evil other than the ogress uh, in Sleeping Beauty. That is, none of the fairies are any particularly evil. We don't get that kind of an antagonist there. Um, in fact, we haven't gotten all that many antagonists. It's one of the things that's remarkable, remarkable about Rumpelstiltskin, right? An antagonist. We get one in Hansel and Gretel, too. Um, you notice what all the antagonists seem to have in common? They want to eat you. Yes, eating children. <laughs> that's what they all have in common, possibly. It's not an open and shut case that that's what Rumpelstiltskin has in mind, but his rhyme implies he's warming up his kettle for the next day when he's going to get the kid. I, I, I suspect him. I do. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, and he's really small. I mean, I don't know. He could Does eat. that count as cannibalism? I don't know. What do you make of the eating? Why is everybody eating children? Not everybody. All the bad guys. Um, well, uh, I can't remember. I think there's like a German folklore fairy tale to like prevent children from like talking to strangers or wandering too far by this sort of <coughs> by a similar thing. I can't remember. Well, Hansel and Gretel has some, somewhat of that. If, I mean, it's not that they, they don't just wander away. I mean, I guess this is what happens when you get abandoned by your parents in the forest. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly is a, a, a kind of a take-home message. But also, remember how easily that legend grew up in Sleeping Beauty when the forest comes and surrounds the castle and nobody can get in and nobody knows what's in there? Well, naturally, the story which fills... The void of information is, oh, a child-eating ogre must be living in there, right? Naturally, of course. That's what you'd expect to find in such a, in such a forest, apparently. Yeah, Matt? Oh, in uh, Hansel and Gretel, the ease with which the woman thinks of the plan, let's go abandon the kids in the forest, can we kind of suspect that maybe that's something that poor peasant families uh, naturally came to in the last resort? Like, maybe we can just get rid of the kids? And so perhaps they started inventing the excuses of ogres carrying home. I don't know. I, see, it's hard to... I don't know... I was thinking about this when reading Hansel and Gretel. My, one of my biggest questions about Hansel and Gretel is I'm not sure, as a reader, how I'm expected to respond to the stepmother in that story. That is... In other words, is that the way that I respond? You know, if I were a contemporary, you know, reader of this story, would I be like, yeah, you know, it's a shame, but sometimes you just got to abandon the kids in the woods. Like, you know, times are tough. Like, you know, it's, it's tough but fair. Like, is that my response? And, and I'm not going to rule out the fact that it might be. Uh, but 
Uh, but I'm not convinced of it either. I'm not sure that that's supposed to be my response, especially since we get all these cues from the dad about how bad he felt about it. Both times he did it or attempted to do it. Uh, and the way that the story resolves itself with the convenient, uh, if not quite miraculous, disappearance of the stepmother in the interim, right? The, you know, the convenient removal of the minor antagonist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Right after the perfectly egregious duck ride. <laughs> how ominous did that seem? I mean, if you couldn't see how close you were to the bottom of the story, and so therefore know there's not too much that's going to happen. I mean, didn't that sound bad? I mean, when they're like, no, let's split up, and the duck will take each of us across. I'll wait here while the duck takes you on alone. And I'm like, no, don't get on the duck. You know, I was sure. So, and then, no, it's fine. So they both got across and went home. Which then left me to wonder, why were we riding ducks? And why did we even make a big deal of it? You know, this is one of the things that we can see in this story as the same thing in Sleeping Beauty. They're like, why are we reading now, like, uh, you know, an ogre eating the step, the, 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 the children-in-law story uh, at the end of that, when it seemed like our story was over? Um, you know, what... And I think one of the things that we can see, and uh, folklorists love this kind of thing, you know, they, they will sort of separate out the different elements of the story and they'll be like, ah, you see, like the, the ogress mother-in-law story has been spliced into the Sleeping Beauty story. And, and uh, you know, so, the, and so here apparently, I, I believe a folklorist would tell us that we have like the, the duck riding element has <laughs> been accreted onto the Hansel and Gretel element. And I'm sure that's a perfectly fine way to describe it. That doesn't, I never find that a perfectly satisfying answer to my question. That is, my question would be, Mr. Lang, why did that seem to, like, if it was just an accretion, why didn't you cut it, Mr. Lang? Why do we get the ducks? Obviously, at the very least, Andrew Lang himself must have thought that was a, 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 an element of the story worth keeping in and not cutting. We know he cut lots of other things, and cha- he wasn't shy about changing things. Um, any guesses about... I don't want to totally divert things into the ducks. Talking about, <laughs> talking about eating children. The, the, the children being eaten is way more important than the ducks, but... Well, but that's why they could only carry one at the dock. Cat. <laughs> um. Well, first with the eating children, I took it as sort of a metaphor for infanticide because infanticide was a rampant problem back then. And um, why? A lot of times during famines, you couldn't feed your children. Uh, stepmothers wanted their own blood children to inherit, so yeah. they well, killed the previous. Yeah, the stepmother thing is very clear. And this is an old, old mo- motif. And it's not... This is always hard, because there is a temptation to read the stepmother thing as simply an anti-feminist tradition. Like, let's make the evil anti-mother figure who is, like, wanting to kill children instead of nourish them. And this is, like, you know, like the evil anti-woman and, like, the nice benevolent mommy figure and you've got the two of them and, you know, the ogress mother-in-law, it's all, it's all part of the same picture. 
But the wicked stepmother is an absolutely inescapable byproduct of the inheritance traditions in almost all of these societies. And coupled with the fact that women died a lot. Uh, Not quite so often as children, but really quite frequently childbirth was really dangerous. So many men, especially rich men who owned land, would often very frequently have multiple wives because their wives would die in childbirth and they'd marry again to have more heirs. But then again, you get the inheritance thing, right? You don't get this, you don't get wicked stepfathers because when the husband dies, the property passes on and you don't have somebody there sort of scheming for the property, right? So yes, the, the stepmother, the second wife, and, 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 almost, and you see this, this story is going way, way back, almost always hates the children of the first mother. Why? Because she wants her own children to inherit the property. And if they're younger, they're not gonna, right? So uh, her conspiring against them so that her own natural child can either inherit the throne or inherit the land or whatever... That dynamic is sort of almost inescapable, given the, the sort of political realities of almost all of these societies. Um, so yeah, that one's, that, that's fair. And, and then, so that, that's certainly one way in which, in which infanticide comes in. And I, I, I don't know, I think there are ways in which, like I said, I'm open to the idea that like, again, with Hansel and Gretel, we, the original audience of that story, would not be reeling back in, like, surprise and horror. You know, like, what? You're going to do what to the children? I can't believe it. That, that the reaction would be like, yeah, well, you know, you shouldn't do that. But it happens, you know. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, but I still... Lang is certainly, at the very least, with the remorse that he gives to the husband trying to moderate that, at least. Yeah. Um, going off of that, for all the sort of, I guess, seemingly, um, I don't know, reproachful, reprimand, or reprimandable, well, bad actions <laughs> that are committed, um, they don't seem to get, like, punished for them or no or scolded or told that it's wrong, rather the people who do better actions are rewarded, I've noticed. Like this, like in the um, Beauty and the Beast. And then in here, like in Hansel and Gretel, um, they don't say that, this, that the mom is wrong. She just suddenly disappears in the end and everyone gets rewarded in the end. But then Beauty and the Beast, um, the, sister, the sisters who are kind of mean to beauty, you know, they don't... No one tells them that, you know, stop being mean to your sister. It's just beauty gets everything. Right, and they don't get mutilated or anything. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and that's... One, Lang does tend to ratchet down the punishment end of things. Bad guys get less. Um, don't often get all of what used to be seen as coming to them uh, in Andrew Lang. So that is one thing that we can see. Um, but I agree. It, there seems to be in many of these stories more of a more of a reward system established. The father in Hansel and Gretel is rewarded, I guess, for having for feeling guilty about what he did twice. <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but now, what do you make? See, in Hansel and Gretel, we get both a wicked stepmother and a simply carnivorous witch, right? 
who just catches children and fattens them up to eat them. It's the famous iconic moment of the chicken bone through the bars, right? Kev? Um, I think that the stories are, uh, a lot of them are fueled by kind of a primordial human fear, so to speak, that, you know, it's eat or be eaten. Even, you know, modern capitalism kind of stems from that, from that old adage. And, um, I mean, the, the line at the end of this story, uh, um, where he's talking about the mouse, the mouse. running yes. across the floors in every version of Hansel and Gretel I think I've ever read. And it's so strange because yeah. it's such a, I guess, like a metatheatrical moment almost, right. where, you know, we're going to catch this mouse and then turn it into a hat, you know, kill this thing and use it for, for your own enjoyment, really. Right. With the sort of absurdity of making a hat out of a mouse, right? <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's the most unusual formulaic end to a fairy tale that you get, the make the hat out of the mouse line. Um, and it is true, I, we say, it's metatheatrical. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting about that moment, it's one of the moments where we are reminded of the fact that tale-telling is what's happening here, right? Where we are not just being brought into a story directly, but we're being reminded of sort of the mediating level between us and the story. As we get this one brief comment by the storyteller to the audience of the story, not the original participants in it. Um, yeah, which is, which is strange, though I agree. It is an interesting kind of uh, um, twist at the end, Right? Oh, the poor children, they're being abandoned in the forest. Oh, no, the witch is going to eat them. Oh, phew, the little children are safe and not going to be eaten and exploited. There's a mouse. Kill it and wear it for a hat. I mean, it's, it's, it, is a, it is a funny twist. And I, I think it's, it, it does work, I think, as a kind of commentary. I mean, like, our, is, is the little mouse who's going to be worn for a hat, like, do they have, you know, similar kind of fairy stories of, like, you know, these strange giants who slay them and wear them as headgear. Um, it, at least it invites that, 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 that question. No, I, I agree. I think that, I think that that's, that, that's sort of funny. Um, yeah, Jordan? Uh, the discussion of the, uh, the wicked stepmother trope made me wonder, the vizier in Aladdin is also an example of a, a common idea of the scheming vizier who you know, has his own interest in the kingdoms. He's not quite as bad as you know, a magician, but he's, he wants his own son to marry the princess and then he tries to cheat a lot out of that. So I'm wondering, is, is, is there any way that you can understand why the, why the vizier is always a Jew? <laughs> well, the vizier is a very natural position for that because is the person who is the chief counselor, um, but you don't necessarily have to be noble. Like, it's not an inherited position. So it's, in theory anyway, one of, the position, one of the highest positions to which you can rise just by merit, right? Or theoretically by merit. You don't have to inherit it, right? So someone who is cunning and devious could rise to be a vizier. You couldn't rise to be, to be emperor or sultan or something like that, but, but you could rise to be vizier, right? So if someone is really cunning and unscrupulous, they could put themselves into that position. So the idea of the cunning and unscrupulous vizier um, who has gotten where he has gotten by his political prowess, even if nothing else, um, does kind of make that a, a very natural opening. And I think it's, you know, okay, it, is, it is hard, though I have to say I admire your discipline 
thus far uh, in not alluding to the Disney films as often as you have not alluded to them in these discussions so far. Um, but I would say in passing, I think it's actually very interesting the choice that the Disney film made to combine the vizier and magician figures, right? That, I thought, was a, uh, it was a really fascinating move and quite an effective one. But it changes the magician figure very much, right? Mac? Well, to go completely afield, I thought that was a really poor decision on Disney's part because, you know, we're watching Mr. Jafari all the scheming and we just eat vizier. Wait, is he vizier? When does he stop hiding his power and keeping and actually do stuff for the kingdom? He's got, like, sub-viziers uh, who do the work, you know? Like, he, he's got a whole, like, vizier staff, probably, <laughs> you know, that he can pawn all the actual work on to leave himself free to scheme. I think that would be part of the vizier contract, especially if you also happen to be a devious magician. So, yeah, yeah. No, I think you can work that out. Um, that... The bigger question is sort of when does the sultan sultan? I mean, and how? As he seems to be a complete imbecile. Uh, I mean, really, like, of all of the dopey fathers in Disney films, the sultan in Aladdin has got to be... I mean, is there a dopier father? Of all, I mean, because the fathers are pretty dopey. I mean, better than the mothers who don't exist. But the, but the fathers are idiots. Uh, anyway, and he was a pretty bad example. It's hard to, you know, am I sultan or am I sultan? You know, I mean, come on. Oh, yeah, I can change the law anytime I yeah, want. Exactly. Yeah, uh, no, that was, um, that really kind of strained uh, my powers of suspension of disbelief. But, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have to put into the father of the prince in the original Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, and, 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 uh, right, yeah. Though, of course, see, his weakness is an original part of the story, right? I mean, that he is completely dominated uh, by his, by his second wife. Um, So that is almost necessary, but, but, uh, no, I agree, he he does, he does rival the sultan in Aladdin in sheer dopiness. Uh, So that's a fair point. Um, yeah, but it's interesting. Again, the, 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 the thing that I would say going back to, uh, going backwards from, from Jafar, uh, what happens when the vizier and the magician are different people is that neither of them is anything like as evil as they are when you put them together. The, the vizier, yeah, he's a cunning and devious guy, but he seems pretty above board. I mean, like, all he has to do is come up with a, with a better dowry offer, right? And the, and the daughter is his. He doesn't seem to do anything illegal or underhanded. He just comes up with it, right? He, he manages to pony up, and, and, and the, the daughter gets promised to him. Like, you know, you go, vizier, right? But, uh, and the magician, again, he's unscrupulous, certainly in the way in which he plans to uh, exploit and abandon... Aladdin, you know, but uh, but he's not. He doesn't have like an evil parrot or anything. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Named after a Shakespeare character, uh, but no. I mean, seriously, he's not. He's not. Uh, he's not. He's not that bad. He's not that bad. Um, we've alluded to once, but not yet talked about. Sleeping Beauty, and, and, and we should, especially since it's so long. Um, 
Now, what the obvious comparison here, uh, that it will probably not surprise you that I want to talk about, compare and contrast with Dame Ragnall. There we get a similar kind of plot, right? A, a preternaturally ugly person uh, whose curse is broken by the generous acceptance of the highly virtuous, good and desirable individual who gets sort of thrown together with him or her, right? They're gender switched. But it seems pretty similar, right? What do you make of it, Liz? Beauty and the Beast is what I've actually been talking about. Thank you, Liz. Brain and mouth do not always communicate very effectively. Beauty and the Beast. That's why you're all so puzzled, because we've <laughs> talked about Sleeping Beauty really quite a bit. And I was wondering why you were all looking at me so strangely when I said we haven't talked about Beauty and the Beast, because we totally hadn't, but okay. Excellent. Do I have to make my whole question again, or can you like back process it? Are we, are we okay? Similarities. Dame Ragnall, Beauty and the Beast. Ugly person, curse broken. Lovely, beautiful, virtuous spousal figure who breaks the curse. Discuss. What do you think? Jordan? I was impressed that Beauty took so long to figure it out. I mean, I, I was... <laughs> the moment that, that I haven't, I'm actually not familiar with the Disney movie or the original story of Beyond the most, most Christian level. And I, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, I figured it out in less than a second. You know? <laughs> yeah, he is the prince, so... Uh, she, she took a little about like, three months. Especially since, though that's only how long she's away. I mean, it takes her longer than that. Especially since they keep telegraphing it so clearly. Look beyond appearances, beauty. Like, why do this devastatingly gorgeous prince in my dreams and this hideously ugly beast that I'm living with keep telling me exactly the same thing? I don't know. So, I mean, I agree. I, I, no, I, I think... She's the most clever of all her siblings. <laughs> Setting the bar low. Setting the bar low. (laughs) No, no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, Yeah, yeah, Christine, what are you thinking? Um, I mean, it's kind of trivial, but I I don't know. I thought that the parallels were drawn on, like, even, I guess, smaller levels. I don't know. I sort of, like, drew a parallel for myself between, like, Sir Grover... And the fairy, that one random beautiful lady. Like, they both seem to, like, give hints, but that's about it. Like, that's as far as their capacity goes. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. to get this Yeah, and well, I mean, and the other interesting thing, um, you know, that we shouldn't overlook, Beauty and the Beast, I said it right, right? Beauty and the Beast invokes more of the traditional fairy tropes that we saw in the medieval stories than almost any of the others do, right? We're wandering alone in the woods. The father's alone in the woods. Uh, you know, in fact, not only alone in the woods, he is like, has to, you know, he's driven for shelter in a storm in the woods and comes across this fantastic castle, which we get the, the you know, the, 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 the klaxon fairy alarms right at the beginning by the, by the orange trees, right? 
it's not the right season or anything, but no, all of a sudden the trees are in bloom, and oh, day, we're, we've crossed a boundary here, right? And the wealth, oh my goodness, the wealth, right? And, uh, and the beauty of everything except the ugly, ugly beast in the middle of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that distinction, it's almost, it's not quite so pointed, I think, in some ways, as the, the way that our attention is drawn to the richness and beauty of Dame Ragnall's clothes in contrast with the horrible ugliness of, of her herself. But, but we see a similar kind of contrast there. Yeah, Erin? Um, I was reminded of The Wife of Bath's Tale in just the complete lack of an explanation of why the beast was under a spell. I'm waiting at the end, and when the fairy appears, oh, you lifted the enchantment from him. And I'm like, yeah, what was the enchantment there for? Let's get married! Let's get you married! And no, we're not going to have an explanation for that. <laughs> right, exactly. No, no explanation whatsoever. And that, but that too was more medieval than anything we've seen in a while, right? Um, that seems to put the beast prince people in a, a simil- a, certainly a different category from the, I almost called them domestic, that would be not quite fair, fairies in Sleeping Beauty, right? The sort of on-call godmothers, uh, in, it's, or, or even, even worse, in Cinderella, right? The one who just... It's sort of like, well, granted, she has a godmother who's a fairy. I mean, I guess they all do. And, and granted, she's going to be able to do all these things, you know, for her magically and everything. Um, here, again, that's, that's very different from how things were. I mean, you think of the, not only the way that people respond, which is what, or don't respond, which is what we emphasized last time, but the way in which the contact between the two different sort of worlds is so different. That is just the difference between inviting the fairies and having them show up at your party and encountering them as they, as we normally encounter them in medieval stories. That is, you know, politely off in the middle of a forest while nobody else is looking, um, or under an imp tree, but invisibly to everybody else. Um, these fairies don't seem to be at all shy. Beast is shy, right? He doesn't want anyone to know about it. He's not visible to everybody. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is an interesting return in some ways. Jordan? Um, one, well, another thing that I found that I really liked in Beauty and the Beast was, uh, the idea of the, the, the taboo action that brings down the wrath of the fairies. And then with one fall, we had the, uh, the, the explicit call-outs of the by Tria Yeah. To, um, not, not to give a name. And we have uh, one night ahead of the hunt in uh, in Dame Ragnall. And in later fairy stories, there's often a, a don't leave the path kind of thing, like in The Hobbit. And, uh, yeah. and yeah. He, he goes to pick the rose, and the rose, it's, off, it's actually off a path. He's going to the stable, and he sees another path that takes him to the rose. And I, 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 I thought, huh, it's, it's don't stray from the, the appointed path, you know, you end up in a bad way. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because the father's response to the beast showing up and yelling at him about taking the rose seems quite reasonable. That is, I, I was being hosted so richly, this rose surely is of lesser value than like most of the stuff that I've been freely given all the way through. It never occurred to me. It never would have occurred to me that 
given how I've been treated, plucking this rose would have been a big deal. That, that's, God, that seems perfectly reasonable, especially since the setup that we had before was the other sisters are all asking for a king's ransom in jewels and things, and she has asked for something which is designed to be cheaper and less valuable than everything else. Um, you know, and then his, the way that that kind of turns around and when he comes back and gives her the rose and says, you have no idea what, the, how, you know, what this cost, right? Um, but I agree, we do get in that moment this sense of you have, you have crossed a taboo. And again, that, that familiar sense, familiar to us after reading these stories, sense of unfamiliarity, I think, in saying like, oh, well, I wouldn't have expected, how, how was I supposed to know? that I wasn't supposed to do that, that doesn't make sense to me, obviously. I mean, that is, it's, it doesn't make obvious sense. Um, yeah, no, I thought, that, that too, I thought was a, was a really interesting moment uh, thematically in that story, and one that's easy to forget uh, in the, the, you know, the whole, all the way to emphasis on the, like, is she going to finally tumble to the fact that the, be- that the beast and the prince are the same person? Um, but notice, there's, there's also a thematic emphasis on that as well, that is a, 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 a thematic effect of that, is that this doesn't become the story of the girl who figured out that if she agrees to marry the beast, she's actually going to get the handsome prince instead, like that this is the way to get yourself a handsome, rich fairy prince, but rather it becomes, it remains the story of the girl who chose to love the beast even though he looked nasty. Right? And that's a different story. Matt? I'm not sure that's what we're getting here. Because the beast is almost completely uninvolved in everything she does in the castle. They, they barely converse. They barely see each other. He doesn't have a personality. Basically, the only thing he ever says is, will you marry me? And she says no. And then she's like, but check out this castle. It's a great castle. So, I mean, she seems to fall in love with the castle, yeah. but I don't think she actually interacts enough with the beast that we can say there's any looking beyond appearance there. It's all we get is the appearance. I agree we don't get much from him, but we do from her at the end. Marta, what were you thinking? Well, um, just doesn't she have a dream at the while she's with her family where he says, okay, go, and and be with your family, she has that dream where he almost dies, and she goes, oh no, I have to go back. So I feel like that's the moment where she kind of makes the connection between this beautiful place and the one who created it, which or lives there, which is the beast. Yeah, and she's worried about him when she shows, and he doesn't show up right away, right? And she's like, oh, where's the beast? Is he going to be dead? And, um, and she, if I remember correctly, doesn't she use the phrase, my beast? Like, where's my beast? I mean, she, she speaks about him affectionately. Um, there at the end. So, I mean, I agree. It's not like we see this is one of the chief things. See, it's funny. I'm the one who keeps breaking it and bringing up the Disney films. But it's interesting to, to, to do the contrast, right? The difference between how the Disney film does the relationship between Beauty and the Beast is they interact so much more right? You know, you get this like, oh, we're all having fun throwing snowballs at each other and, you know, ballroom dancing, right? But then there's a library. There's a library here. We got the library moment, right? That was good. But, but here we don't. That is, she doesn't, it's not a question of her becoming accustomed to the beast. Like, oh, once I hang out with the beast, I see he's really a nice guy after all. We don't get 
that kind of a growth of a of sort of a normal relationship between her and the beast. Um, but in some ways, I think it, it sort of it makes that step that she takes seem bigger, even to the beast. You know, or he like he's glad she's back, and so he's decided not to die. And uh, but he's still not making any assumptions. So you know, at the end of dinner, he asks his sort of perfunctory like, so uh, you know. It's 6.30, I have to ask you, will you marry me, right? That's what we do every day. And she says yes to his surprise, right? Um, And then the curse is broken and everybody's happy. But again, that does still seem to be, or at least we seem to be invited to see it as a step, as a big step by her, and not a step of intuition or of cleverness. Um, Though again, I, I don't disagree, Mac, that it clearly has a lot to do with the castle, you know, but again, it's not. I, but but I don't think it's like you know. I really want the the sweet crib, so I'll put up with the beast, right? That's at least that's not how she talks at the end. I don't think. Um, we've got like two minutes. Rumpelstiltskin. We haven't talked about Rumpelstiltskin. We get a dwarf, so that's fun. <laughs> little mannequin, right? Mean little mini man who can spin gold out of straw. It's interesting because, on the one hand, we get a, a, an impossible task imposed, except it's not imposed by fairies or anybody. It's imposed through the absurd and short-sighted cupidity of the father, right? Who makes this ridiculous boast that his daughter can spin straw into gold. Um... The beginning of the story is sort of what I found oddest. Once, we, once we're locked inside a chamber full of straw and being asked to spin it into gold and Rumpelstiltskin shows up, like, okay, we know where we are. But, uh, but the beginning, the setup of it is frankly awkward. Jordan? Um, the, 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 the idea that having a daughter that makes you spin straw into gold and make you important is the connection there is so tenuous. When you, if you, if you, you strike the poor man clearly, which means you probably not want to have a clothes. If you put your daughter on the wall, you'll be a witch man, because you see a witch man, <laughs> ten times as, 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 as believable and just as likely and also less, less you know, impossible. Yeah. So many other things you can claim, and you just choose one at the end of that. If, if it was true, it would like half the other things. Yeah, I agree. It is the most crazily improbable claim. I, I just, it's hard to imagine what we're supposed to be imagining that Miller was thinking at the beginning. The one thing I'd point out as a side note, um, remember she has a ring and a necklace to give to Rumpelstiltskin on the first two nights, not respectively? This is because she's, she's probably not poor. Miller meant something different. Um, a Miller was usually, uh, uh, was usually reasonably wealthy. Um, not like, you know, we're not talking like Rockefeller here, but not a really poor, but they were still peasants. Um, they, they, I mean, they would tend to have the reputation for unscrupulousness because, you know, they would fleece people and they would establish essentially monopolies um, and could rip people off. Um, but, I mean, from the Middle Ages forward, once we invent the water mill, then the person who runs, uh, who runs the mill you know, can kind of 
set his price unless there are laws in place to prevent it, which there were. There came to be laws in place. But so when we're talking about a miller and his daughter, we're probably not talking about someone who is destitute uh, with poverty. Hmm? Yeah, he's, he, maybe he runs a crappy mill or something. Yeah, but anyway, so the, the fact that he's a miller, it would make a certain amount of sense that his daughter might have, she has trinkets. But they're obviously, the point is not the trinkets, like, ooh, she has a, an immensely valuable necklace and ring. This is clearly just set up for day three, right? Um, where now what I shall demand is your child for unnamed and unspeakable purposes. Um, okay, if I forget, remind me. The beginning of class next time, I want to talk about Rumpelstiltskin and the Wicked Witch in the Candy House. Okay? Let's, let's, with these two clearly magical probably child-eating uh, 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 antagonists, and I, I want to do some comparison and contrast. See you later. All right. For the next class, we will move on to Snow White and Rose Red, Jack the Giant Killer, and my personal favorite, the Black Bull of Norway. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.